Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to episode 26 of We Don't Talk About P-Word. Today I'm beginning a new series, but it's not technically for the new season. Season 2 is still coming soon, I promise. But you can consider this next several episodes, season 1.5. Before we launched, I contemplated several different formats. What did I want my podcast to be about? I always knew it would have some type of historical angle to it, but I wasn't sure how to include politics. My first thought was to tell historic stories that didn't quite go down the way we think. I realized that wasn't a unique voice in the podcast community. That's when I noticed that no one was talking about politics from the people's point of view. Everyone wants to talk about politics from the view of Republicans versus Democrats. When you do that, it sets us up to fail. The parties do not work for the people. The sooner we all get on the same page, the better our nation will be. Thus was born, we don't talk about P-word. My intention was to not come back until September after the 4th of July special. Instead, I decided to not let the writing and research I'd already done for that forgotten podcast go to waste. I wanted to finish the untold story. To help fill the time, I plan to share what would have been the inaugural episodes for that podcast. At first, I feared it was going to be wildly different in theme than Talk P-Word. As I edited and continued the writing, I realized that wasn't the case. This story just can't be told without talking about politics. I want to remind you that this is a historical story. I don't claim facts that don't exist, and when things are uncertain, I say so. This tale isn't meant to upset anyone, but that doesn't mean it won't. It is never my desire to disparage our nation or our history. My goal remains to tell the people the facts. I only want to highlight the details that surround historical and political events. History is written by the winners, and this is rarely the people. It is always my only desire to help put history and politics into perspective in all its gritty details. As I have said many times in the past, facts aren't meant to make you feel good. With the trigger warning out of the way, let's get into it. Over the next several episodes, I will regale you with a story of paradise. July 7th marked the 125th anniversary of the annexation of Hawaii. August 16th marked 64 years since Hawaii achieved statehood. Now seems like the perfect time to discuss Hawaii's journey to become our 50th state. We all see the star. We all know it's a state. But do you know how it happened? Do you know how an independent nation 2,000 miles off our coast became a part of our union? I'd give you three guesses, but if you've been listening to this podcast, you probably only need one. So strap in, because this is a roller coaster of a story. It includes military action, murder, intrigue, and betrayal. Before I get into the story, I want to apologize. I attempt to use Hawaiian names and words. I may or may not always be successful with that. There are more failures than successes, I am sure. Hawaiian names are often hard to pronounce. But for me, it is important to do my best and use their names. I do this out of respect for the people who live this story because that is exactly who they were. People. Not characters in a storybook, not abstracts of history, but real, living 
people. People who lived, people who love and were loved, people who made mistakes, people who ruled a kingdom. They deserve more than becoming a caricature from a storybook. It is for this reason that I do my best to honor their memories and tell their stories. I attempt to do this without bias, to truly know, to truly empathize with their lives. Your opinions, your judgments, I will leave those up to you. This should go without saying, but before we start, I want to remind you there is so much more to these stories. I can only cram so much into a 30-minute episode. I also place my focus on primarily political events or events that affected politics. This means there are a lot of interesting stories I leave untold. I encourage you to read more about any subjects that pique your interest. You will not be disappointed. So with no further ado, I give you Hawaii. The island chain we know today as Hawaii was once believed to be settled between the years 400 and 1100. Technological advancements have scientists now believing Hawaii was first settled around 1219. It is also believed that there was a relatively quick influx of settlers. This begins the period of Hawaiian history known as Ancient Hawaii. The first settlers of Hawaii were Polynesians from Tahiti, Marquesas, and Samoa. Hawaiian folklore tells of native, dwarf-like humans known as Minahuni. According to myths, the Minahuni were driven out as the settlers arrived. The legends say they escaped to the mountains and forests. They also say you can still find them today if you're a child or in some way connected to them. These early settlers brought with them livestock and plants necessary for survival. They also found the Hawaiian islands to be rich in natural resources. This allowed them to establish thriving settlements and spread across the islands. They created and utilized fish ponds, which were farmed for up to 2 million pounds of fish a year. Unfortunately, they also brought rats with them. Rats, along with livestock, led to many native species of flora and fauna becoming extinct. Here is an interesting fact about the crops the ancient Hawaiians grew. Sweet potatoes are a crop native to South America. Studies have shown they were a staple crop for ancient Hawaiians. Further analysis has shown sweet potatoes made it to Polynesia around 1100. This means Polynesians had contact with South America long before Europeans did. Ancient Hawaiians settled in the coastal areas and moved inland. This created a dense population across the chain of islands. This early society was ruled by a caste system. It was much like modern India is today. You had the Ali'i, who were the chiefs of the tribes and subdivisions of tribes. The Kahuna were what you would call subject matter experts. They were the leading people in their fields. This included priests, as well as carpenters, dancers, and doctors, to name a few. The Maka'aiana were the common citizens in their culture. The lowest caste level in ancient Hawaiian society was the Kaua. These were the servants, slaves, and outcasts. Members of this caste were often used as human sacrifices. The ancient Hawaiians observed a polytheistic religion. This means they worshipped many gods who personified nature. Their major gods included Ku, Kane, Lono, and Kanaloa. Lesser gods and demigods that are more well known to us today include Pele and Maui. 
Their religious observance was called kapu, and it was based on taboos. This was a strict religious observance. It enforced restrictions on women and men eating together. It limited fishing to specific times of the year. It even stated that it was illegal to touch the chief's shadow. Their religious observance also placed great emphasis on the awa or kava plant. It was used to create a narcotic drink used for ceremonies and meals. Children were educated at home. They were taught life skills, usually by their grandparents. For smarter or more advanced children, they were often apprenticed to a kahuna. These children literally became members of the kahuna's family. They lived with the kahuna, learning through observation and participation. Traditional Hawaiian culture believed that children should be seen and not heard. Asking questions was discouraged. In Hawaiian culture, they believed they did not own the land. They occupied it. They believed in the land and their gods' immortality, which meant that mortals could not own land. This would obviously create future problems for the native Hawaiians. Who worked the land, or more likely, who controlled it, could change. For the common Hawaiian, they were typically left in place to pay tribute to the new chief. This is like the feudal system of Europe. I have also found a couple of interesting aspects of ancient Hawaiian culture. Families began to specialize in the skills they offered. This eventually spread through the islands, too. Oahu became the cloth manufacturer for the society. Maui became the canoe builders, and Hawaii farmed and sold dried fish. Also, homosexual, bisexual, and polyamorous relationships were part of Hawaiian culture as well. This was referred to as the Aikane relationships. The term kane meant male or husband, but this was accepted of both men and women. These relationships often began in their teens. Many continued even if they entered heterosexual relationships later in life. It was so common that an offer was extended to a British officer on their first visit. When explorer James Cook spent time in Hawaii, he was asked by a chief to leave Lieutenant James King behind. The offer was considered a great honor by the Hawaiians. The four main islands, Hawaii, Maui, Kauai, and Oahu, were each ruled by an elder alei. These islands were subdivided, and each subdivision was ruled by a lesser alii. These chiefs were all interrelated, creating somewhat of a familial dynasty. The longest of those reigning dynasties descended from Liloa. Liloa and his direct descendants ruled from the late 1400s through the early 1700s. It may have been an even longer dynasty, as his line was said to be unbroken, leading back to Hawaiian creation. The first to unify all the islands of Hawaii was Umi, the second son of Liloa. The unbroken Liloa dynasty ended with the death of Kiawe, the then ruler of Hawaii. A civil war broke out between his two sons and a rival chief, Alape. Alape won, assuming rule of Hawaii in 1725. The grandsons of the former chief were absorbed into Alape's tribe. This included Kiaua, the future father of Paia. Alape's son was overthrown by Kalani Opu'u after only one year as ruler. Under Kalani Opu'u's rule, Hawaii entered a time of great change. 
this change was heralded by white sails on the horizon. The first Europeans to set foot on Hawaii arrived in 1778. Captain James Cook anchored the HMS Resolution of the British Royal Navy off the coast of Kauai. The Resolution and its sister ship, the Discovery, had set sail to find a northwest passage around America. Cook named the chain of islands the Sandwich Islands. He named them after his patron, the Earl of Sandwich, John Montague, and not our preferred way to eat sliced meat. Montague is, however, the sandwich that the famous culinary dish is often credited to. There is some disagreement over what European discovered Hawaii. Spanish historians claim it was the voyage of Captain Rui Lopez de Villalobos in 1543. Writings of a famous French explorer and Portuguese cartographer support this claim. Regardless, European attention did not turn its focus to Hawaii until after Cook's voyage. I'd like to end my story here by saying they all lived happily ever after. I would like to assure you that the relationship was fruitful for all involved. But you and I both know that would be a lie. It ended like most interactions between Europeans and natives around the world. The natives suffer for this introduction. The story of Hawaii is no different. Cook first anchored off Kauai in January of 1778. He and his crew traded and resupplied with the natives. In early February, Cook set sail again, returning to his task of mapping a northwest passage. In January of 1779, Cook and his ships returned, but this time they anchored off the coast of Hawaii. The welcome of the native Hawaiians has been disputed. For a long time, it was thought that the natives saw Cook as an incarnation of their god, Lono. Cook and his crew arrived during Makahiki, a harvest festival for the worship of Lono. Several other coincidences could have also led them to this belief. This included the iconography of their ship's sails and masts and the way they had sailed around the island. They had sailed in a clockwise fashion, mimicking the procession of the festival. Whether they believe Cook to be Lono or not has been disputed. It may have been nothing more than a familiar term used for an unfamiliar visitor. This myth has been attributed to William Bly. He was serving as a young naval officer on board the Resolution. This is the same William Bly that would later be subject to a mutiny on the HMS Bounty. His story was made famous by the movie Mutiny on the Bounty. Whether they believed him to be Lono or not was irrelevant. Cook and his crew were at first treated with honor. Cook and his crew were not exactly model guests. They removed wood used to encircle a native burial ground. Called the Murray Burial Ground, high-ranking individuals were interred here. When the chiefs felt insulted and refused to barter for the wood, Cook had his men take it. Also, the theft of a misplaced rowboat was blamed on one of the native chiefs. This further incensed the natives. Nineteen days after laying anchor, Cook set sail once again. The Hawaiians were not sad to see them go. Soon after setting sail, the resolution was beset by strong winds that broke the mainmast. With no other choice, they returned to the bay for repair. No one Neither Hawaiian nor European was happy with this situation. 
This is shown in the journal of the only American on Cook's ship. John Ledyard wrote, Our return to this bay was as disagreeable to us as it was to the inhabitants, for we were reciprocally tired of each other. Unfortunately, the situation went from bad to worse. While anchored, the natives stole one of the Resolution's longboats. By this point, the patience of the native Hawaiians had run out, and they were now stealing from Cook and his crew. They didn't even bother to hide it. Cook debarked the resolution for the last time as he hatched a plan to get his longboat back. On Valentine's Day, 1779, Cook and his men kidnapped the elder chief, Kalani Opu'u, from his home. As they reached the beach, his favorite wife realized what was happening and raised an alarm. As Cook and his men tried to get the chief into their rowboat, the beach filled with Hawaiians. Recognizing the danger of the situation, Cook and his men backed away with guns raised. A lesser chief, Kanaina, approached Cook, who struck him with the flat of his sword. Kanaina responded by shoving Cook to the ground, or hitting him with a club, depending on the story believed. The chief's personal attendant stabbed Cook in the chest as he tried to stand. Cook fell dead, face down in the surf. Chaos ensued, and a violent melee broke out. Four Marines were killed and two wounded. Cook's crew retreated to the rowboat, firing at the crowd of natives and killing several. One of these was likely Chief Kanaina, who first confronted them. Several days later, after finishing repairs and resupplying, the resolution left Hawaii. The native Hawaiians treated the body of Cook with great respect. Some believe they may have even venerated Cook as a demigod. They prepared his body following their funerary practices of the time. The bones were cleaned and most of his remains were placed in a sacred place. A part of his remains were returned to the crew for their own funerary observances. Cook's crew also had great respect for him. On their return voyage, a craftsman on the resolution carved a small coffin as a memorial for his wife. Crafted from the wood of the Resolution, it contained a lock of his hair and a small painting of his death. A silver plate is inscribed, Lono and the Seaman's Idol. If you're ever in New South Wales, Australia, it's on display at the State Library there. Sometime between 1736 and 1740, Paea was born to High Chief Kiaua and Chiefess Kiku-a-Pua. Paea was born around the time that the Laloa line ended following the Civil War. While pregnant with Paea, his mother made a strange request of the chief, Alape. She asked for the eyes of one of his young lesser chiefs. Alape called for a kahuna that studied the stars to explain her desire. This kahuna told the chief that she was with child and that a man is coming to slay the chiefs. Convinced of the prophecy, he set out to kill the child. On the night of his birth, Paea was spirited away to safety. Alape sent people after the child, and he believed him dead. Eventually, he was informed otherwise. By the time he was twelve, the chief had softened towards him and sent for him to be brought to court. Alape gave the child to his wife and her sister to care for. Paea was raised in the courts of Alape and then Kalani Opu'u after, the, after he overthrew Alape's son. 
Kalani Opu'u's son, Kawala O, became chief upon his father's death in 1782. By many accounts, he was said to be a weak character. Paea was given a prestigious position as guardian of the god of war and control of the Waipio Valley. A perceived slight against Kawala O strained the cousin's relationship. The loyalties of the chiefs of the island of Hawaii were split. A group swore their allegiance to Paea and some remained loyal to Kuala O. This led to conflict. One of the first major battles of the conflict led to the death of Kuala O at the Battle of Moku Ohai. This led to the division of the island of Hawaii into four distinct chieftains. Paea continued the fight with the help of Western weapons. These weapons were sold to him by British and American traders. Two Westerners also became close advisors to Paella. These were John Young and Isaac Davis, British and Welsh citizens respectively. They were survivors of an attack on their ships by native Hawaiians. This attack was in retaliation for a massacre perpetuated by their sister ship. Both men were protected by Paella, made chiefs, and even given wives. With the help of these two men, Paea invaded Maui in 1790. In the same year, Paea finally defeated the last chief in his way to complete control of the island of Hawaii. In 1795, with nearly 1,000 war canoes and 10,000 soldiers, Paea completed his conquest. He conquered both Maui and Oahu. Unfortunately, the politics in Oahu cost his advisor Isaac Davis his life as he was poisoned. With this success, Paea ended ancient Hawaiian culture. In its place, the Kingdom of Hawaii rose. Paea, better known as Kamehameha I, would become the first king of a unified Hawaii. As the history of ancient Hawaii comes to an end, so does today's episode. We will continue to commemorate the 64th anniversary of Hawaii statehood next week. Join me as we discuss the rise of the Kingdom of Hawaii and, of course, the entrance of American politics to the stage. Thank you for joining me on this special episode of We Don't Talk About P-Word. Stay tuned as we continue to explore the Kingdom of Hawaii. Please head over to www.talkpword.com and subscribe to be reminded when new episodes drop. You can also like, follow, and share on Twitter and Facebook to stay informed about new episodes. Any questions or comments can be directed to talkpword at gmail.com. Until next time, qui custodiat ipsos custodas, populus facere.